This is Marginalia, a production of KMUW Wichita. Marginalia. Notes in the margin of a book. Notes, commentary, and similar material written in the margin of a book. Comments and notes which are incidental incidental or additional to the main topic in the margin of a book. The merger between Manhattan and Queens County in 1898 was known as The Great Mistake. It's also the title of a new novel by Jonathan Lee. This work of historical fiction focuses on the life of Andrew Haswell Green, mastermind behind the great mistake of 1898, but also Central Park, the New York Public Library, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Museum of Natural History, and so much more. Andrew Haswell Green is known as the father of Greater New York, to those who actually know about him, and to those who benefit from an introduction from Jonathan Lee through his novel, The Great Mistake. I'm Beth Golay, this is Marginalia, and here's that introduction. Okay, so when I started reading The Great Mistake, um, I saw names that I recognized and others that I didn't. So I began to look up some of these names online to see who was real and who wasn't. And I was very surprised to learn that Andrew Haswell Green was indeed real. And I thought, here you are British, living in New York, but you are British, and you are more aware of this man than most Americans. You know, we don't even know who he is. So how did you come across Andrew Haswell Green? And what about him made you think that there was a novel there? Well, I came across Andrew Haswell Green because I'm obsessed with park benches, which is a strange obsession. But I love park benches. I seek them out wherever I go. I love to read their inscriptions, the the shiny memorial plaques, but also the you know the graffiti and the the pen knife engravings and things that that can't be um, repeated on air. And I think there's sort of a beauty to some of those kind of found public poems and weird statements. And one day in the summer of 2011, I think, I was walking in Central Park. I had just moved from London to New York. I was sweating my way through Glen's Span Arch and along Montaigne's Rivulet, one of New York's original streams, if you know that part of the park. And I came across a bench in that quiet part of Central Park, and it was dedicated to a man named Andrew Haswell Green. So, uh, you know, I I approached and I took a look and the engraving described him as the father of greater New York and creating genius in Central Park. And I I got curious, like you, I'd never heard of him before. And, you know, 10 years of research later, here I am with a novel called The Great Mistake. (laughs) So the title is The Great Mistake. and, And there are many mistakes referenced in the book. And one that captured my attention was the great mistake of 1898, which brought together the five boroughs to form New York City. And I didn't know that was his doing, and I didn't know many of the things that he accomplished. As you mentioned, he's he's known as the father of greater New York. And I'm wondering if you can remind us of some of the things that he's responsible for. Yeah. And so, you know, Andrew Haswell Green, the protagonist of The Great Mistake, is, you know, he's a real 19th century civic leader. As you say, he ended up being murdered on Park Avenue at the age of 83 after creating much of modern New York. He's a person without whom there would be no Central Park, no Metropolitan Museum of Art, no New York Public Library, no Bronx Zoo, uh, no American Museum of Natural History. Uh, He preserved the Hudson Palisades from destruction. Without him, as you say, there would also be no merger of Manhattan with Brooklyn and Queens County and Staten Island into a single city. And and yet he's been entirely forgotten, which is really surprising. And his only real memorial is that 
that stone bench in, in Central Park covered in pigeon poop that I happened to come across and, and sit down in in 2011. We know Green was responsible for these many things, and we know he and Samuel Tilden were friends, and we know that Green was murdered. How much did you rely on history? And because this is a novel, how much did you, you know, how much have you extrapolated? I, I really like stories that, that offer, you know, a framework of history, but have gaps in the facts. And I like imagining um, what exists in those gaps. But this, this is a book where I think every character uh, who is mentioned has some uh, basis in historical fact. Even Green's housekeeper, Mrs. Bray, is mentioned in some of the historical records from the time. Bessie Davis was a real figure. Cornelius Williams, the murderer. You know, there's very little about him. And, and therefore, in the way that history pushed him to the margins of the story, I've sort of chosen not to invent lots of things about him, but to present him in the way that I found him and hope that he's the kind of absence that's as vivid as some of the presences in the novel. I was very lucky to get access at the New York Historical Society Library to a treasure trove of primary documents, Andrew Haswell Green's unpublished diaries and letters, which I could see no one had checked out for a long time. And, you know, one thing that really became clear to me as I blew away the dust on those documents was that Andrew Haswell Green and Samuel Tilden were kind of the central relationship of each other's lives. Um, and so I wanted to try and do that justice in the book as well. And so you mentioned that you were able to check out his papers. While we're reading The Great Mistake, are we ever hearing directly from him, like directly from his diary, or or did you serve as his interpreter? You You are. You're hearing quite a lot of lines whether you know it or not that are directly Andrew Haswell Green's and I think that in draft one or two or 15 or 146 uh, some of those lines probably stood out more than they do today Um, in the same way that I've tried to integrate uh, little bits of newspaper phrasings and clippings about his murder and his life into the text and there are bits of his diaries. There are there are little lines from books that he read. One of the most interesting things in his diaries was kind of lists of books that he was reading at a given time in his life. So then I got to go away and read those texts too when I was trying to capture that time of his life. And I hope that the overall effect is probably sounds a bit pompous, but it, but is of different voices in history kind of speaking to each other because. I really wanted to capture something about the way history is made. And sometimes I feel like historical novels don't always do that. You know, they can adhere very fixedly to chronology and tell you a lot about what characters' clothes (laughs) look like and so forth. I wanted something that was a bit more contemporary than that and moved around in time and kind of captured different small moments behind the headline events in in his life and and indeed his death. You know, you've used real people in your earlier novels, like Margaret Thatcher in High Dive, but they mostly have been on the far peripheries. Did you feel any constraints using these real people, you know, using a real person as your main character in The Great Mistake? Or did, you know, the century plus removal allow you more freedom? I think it allowed a little more freedom, but I I think there is 
always or they always should be at some sense of discomfort in trespassing onto someone's life and you know green has been entirely forgotten and this is this book is partly like an act of love on my part like I, I think that he deserves to be in the limelight again and for his story to be maintained in some way but you know in in the end um every act of writing about a real person kind of is an act of trespass I think <laughs> and it's you know whether whether you're thinking about like a television show like The Crown or like a wonderfully weird reconjuring of Queen Anne in a movie like The Favourite you are taking some liberties along the way because not everything can be known and and my hope is that those liberties add to a sense of who he was uh, rather than take away from him. The Great Mistake is about big themes and big dreams and big events, including a dramatic murder. But it's still somehow a rather quiet and introspective novel. And that is intended to be a total compliment. Did you um, did you find this a difficult balance to create or did it come naturally? Certainly a difficult balance. I think that, um, you know, writing is difficult. For me, I know that, you know, it comes comes pretty easily, perhaps, to some people, if, if you believe what they say. One, one line that kind of occurred to me and I actually sort of had pinned above my computer at some stage of writing this, this book was a, a Virginia Woolf line from one of her diaries. And the line is something like, I meant to write about death, only life came breaking in as usual. <laughs> and I did think at first that, the book I was writing was really about Green's murder on Park Avenue on Friday, November 13th, 1903, that it was about reimagining, reinvestigating that actual murder and the detective work that followed. And of course, that became perhaps half of the book. But I think more and more fascinating to me was to think about the quiet moments that, that are there if you kind of pull back the public curtain and Certainly his diaries and, and letters were really useful in terms of thinking about that. And I think overall, the book became a kind of rise and fall narrative. You know, life and death, two separate stories that belong in the same book, the same universe. And I tried to integrate both into the story I was telling, I guess. You know, even though the novel was set between like 1820 and, and 1903, and it would go back and forth between Green's childhood and coming of age and young adulthood and and whatnot to you know present day 1903 trying to solve a murder you know there were a few subjects that were included that that felt timely like race and election fraud and and sexuality or are they just timeless i th i think that you know they are timeless I, I sometimes when the word timeless gets used in connection with novels i think to myself well you know i don't want my books to be timeless any more than I want like a chicken sandwich to be timeless <laughs> like I want it to capture a specific time and place and bring that time and place to life very specifically but you know that there, there are of course things that are universal and corruption of uh, public officials would be one of them uh, race relations unfortunately in America and beyond is, is obviously one of them and I think you know, a lot of the, the the more interesting historical fiction books that have come out recently have been by writers of color who are revisiting history as a lens to look at the present. I think another thing that became really 
timely, I, I guess, um, as I wrote the book was this idea of public space because, you know, I think the pandemic has made a lot of us reassess the value of public spaces in our lives and in cities like New York, you know, parks have become a reprieve from isolation, pubs and restaurants are spilling out onto pavement, schemes to reclaim the city streets for pedestrians have, have flourished and, and schools with open gates have become sources of celebration rather than complaint. <laughs> and I think Green was was really prescient in seeing the value of these public spaces and creating them. You know, like the when he arrived in New York in the book at the age of 15, and he records this in his diary too, he's going to be an apprentice in a general store. Two things he loves are walking and reading. And the only safe places to walk are ticketed pleasure gardens and he can't afford them. And there's no big public park. And the only libraries are private libraries. So he can't afford to read either. And then later in life, he ends up building Central Park and the New York Public Library. And that fascinated me because would he have done those things if he'd had a different start in life? I don't, I don't know. I completely skipped over this question. And I wanted to ask you, you know, this might be more about the structure of the novel, but the chapters were titled with the names of the gates of Central Park. And I didn't know about these gates. And I was wondering first if you can explain the idea of the People's Park and the individual gates. But then also, when you titled the chapters after these gates, you know, was it a, a clever way to structure the novel? Or, or was there a, a purpose that I'm just not intelligent enough to understand? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that, you know, I, I loved the gates as an image because, you know, when Green and the designers were creating Central Park, there was a lot of pressure on Green to allow rich New Yorkers to sort of sponsor the individual gates for the different entryways into Central Park and to add their names to them. And I think what he proposed was kind of revolutionary in a quiet way and that, that sums him up because he said well no i want all the people of new york to be able to use this park so you know there became mariners gate and merchants gate and gate names that reflected not individual rich new yorkers but the different professions perhaps of the people as a whole and the more i re researched green's life the more i saw that you know he had been different people at different times in his his life you know he'd been a He'd been a farm boy. He had been a merchant's apprentice. He traveled on a brig all the way to Trinidad. That became the Mariner's Gate chapter in my book. So I started to think, you know, rather than arranging all the events of his life chronologically in the way that a sort of more Dickensian novel would do, like what would it look like to accept that there are these different selves that people embody across their lives and that there are these different gateways uh, and entry points onto someone's life. And so I sort of like that the chapters can hopefully almost stand alone. You can dip in and you can glimpse a different Andrew Haswell Green through different chapters of The Great Mistake, different gateways onto Central Park and onto his life. Now you seem to know Andrew Haswell Green probably better than anybody these days. So do you feel that that Green would have been who he was, you know, rather interior and, and seemingly unable to embrace his sexual side, regardless of when he lived? Or might have he been more of a Pete Buttigieg type figure if he had been born later? 
It's interesting. I mean, he was a very solitary man. Uh, I think, you know, the person who's done the most to keep his name alive, actually, in the last few years is a, a former Manhattan Borough historian named Michael Mischioni. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, who has written various blog posts and made some resources available. And I think, you know, I, I do think Green was a very solitary man in, by his nature. I think restraint was key to his character. I thought that sometimes of the butler in Ishiguro's amazing, the remains of the day. I think if, you know, if the question is sort of if he was alive today, I mean, if he had a, a dating profile, I think it would say something like, if you hang around for a decade, I might eventually get used to you. <laughs> Whereas, <laughs> as I was saying, someone the other day, you know, the profile of someone like Robert Moses, another creator of modern New York, who's better known, would, would probably be more like, you will love me to death. You know, there wasn't a lot of ego and um, there was a lot of sort of restraint and, and quiet within Green, even though he could be really stubborn and confident and really make things happen. Now, I have a couple of questions related to your day job, if that's okay. Yeah. Uh, so you are editor-in-chief at Catapult, which is a highly respected indie publisher for our listeners who might not be aware. Um, how do you separate Jonathan Lee, the writer, and Jonathan Lee, the editor? It's difficult sometimes to balance the two, but I think that it's all part of the same aim, the same goal for me, which is to try and put interesting work out in the world and you know, as a as an editor at Catapult, I've got to publish some fantastic authors and bring them to American audiences, like authors like John McGregor and Joker Al Harty, who won the Man Booker International Prize last year, and Claudia Regis, whose book we published, Sea Monsters, ended up winning the, the Penn Faulkner last year. Um, it's it's sort of you know I, I like to be <laughs> I like to be busy, and I like to surround myself with books and I, I think I would be doing that anyway. So yeah, I've had lots of jobs in my lifetime. I, you know, I used to be a lawyer as Andrew Haswell Green was. I, I've worked in lots of shops as, as he did too. And I think I've settled on a life in books as being the bigger privilege of all of those different roles. Um, so does being an editor yourself, how does it impact your relationship with your editor at Knopf? I, I hope that, um, it means that I'm really nice to all the people at <laughs> <laughs> because, because I know how tough it is, you know, putting out uh, literary work. And I think it just requires a, a certain um, belief and sort of indomitable spirit. And my, my editor at Knopf, Diana Miller, is fantastic and extremely patient with me and has made this book so much better. So, uh, you know, it's wonderful every time I get to work with her. I think it's, I think being an editor myself has probably changed the way I write or rewrite in some ways. I think um, most writing is rewriting. And I, when I'm editing other people's manuscripts, I sometimes do multiple passes and one pass I'll just be focusing on character work. And on the next pass, I'll be focusing on the sentences and the language. And then the next pass I'll make my, I'll force myself to only think about the structure the plot, the sequence of events, because I, I feel like you need to get in a slightly different brain space for each of those. And that was how I revised my own novel here, The Great Mistake. I sort of, I went through the slightly insane task of reading the manuscript multiple, multiple times with different 
things in mind and different colored pens and things like that. I mean, it, it, if, if anyone was watching, it would have looked like the work of a madman, but it, but it worked for me. I have never asked this question before, but an author offered it to me the other day and I found it interesting. She had told me how many revisions she had saved on her computer. Like, like when she got all done, it, there were like maybe 125. This was number 125 and this is the final book. And maybe you do your, your revisions in, in, you know, on pen and ink and you only go back to the computer once, but do you know how many, how many times you had to do those revisions? Like what number, what number is this right here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah it would it would probably be hundreds of times i think i mean I've, over over the course of you know some parts of the book have probably been rewritten hundreds of times and i think there are there would also be other parts of the book that have only been rewritten a few times and i think it's a delicate balancing act like i, I wanted this book to feel i wanted to capture some sense of central park and central park is in part, you know, a, a man-made construction or it is entirely a man-made construction, like all the bodies of water are fake. A lot of the soil was, was brought in from elsewhere. Um, you, you might like that tinkling sound of a stream in the background, but it can be turned on and off with a faucet. <laughs> a lot of people don't know that about Central Park. And I wanted to write a novel that sort of brought some attention to its form and had you know, some of that polish, but at the same time, there were sections that were more highly personal about Andrew Haswell Green and his life and say his relationship with his father. And, and I didn't want to overwork some of that material. I wanted it to feel a little raw and, and slightly messier. So, you know, there are, there are times I think where it makes sense to pull back on, on the urge to re revise. That was Jonathan Lee, author of The Great Mistake, which was published by Knopf. Thanks for joining us for Marginalia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editor is Luann Stevens, and our producer is Haley Krausen. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay. <music>